Have you praised the Lord today? Thank you, Tara, for the blessing of your presence and the blessing of your ministry. What a blessing it is to be part of a brotherhood and a sisterhood, uh, to recognize that there are, are people who know how to praise the Lord um, in other communities of faith. Praise God. I don't know uh, what your week has been like, but I hope and pray that you have reason to praise the Lord today. Maybe you've seen the hand of God moving in marked ways. Maybe you've seen the hand of God moving in, in obvious ways. And maybe there are some of us who haven't even seen God's hand at all, but his hand has been there nonetheless. You know, today um, we're going to be presenting a message entitled Movement of Destiny. Movement of Destiny. And for those of you who didn't know, welcome to Prophecies of Hope Seminar. If you haven't been there already, you have a chance. You've got one more week to join us uh, in the evenings. An amazing supper at 6 o'clock and then the presentation begins at around 6.30 or thereafter. But Prophecies of Hope has been a blessing to me. I've been watching uh, the movements of God in people's lives. And how many of you have sensed that God has been speaking to you through his word? Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I tell you what, um, this is all God. <laughs> this is all God. When he speaks to us through his word, he wants us to listen and he wants us to be changed. And some of us have been experiencing those changes. The word is something that is living and active according to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. And so today, uh, we're going to dive into the Word of God. Now, I just want to make sure that if you've gotten a bulletin, maybe in your bulletin there's this white insert. Uh, it's our Prophecies of Hope presentation outline. On one side, it will say, Unlocking the Longest Time Prophecy. But if you open it up, there should be a page that says, Movement of Destiny, number 17. Do you guys see that? Do you have that in your handout? Okay, excellent. This will give you an outline of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But um, I, I will just let you know, uh, in nights past when I've presented, uh, I, have, I have kind of read through the sermon outline, I've read through the presentation outline. I can't guarantee that that's going to happen this morning. And I'll tell you why, because the subject that we're going to be talking about this morning is one that really gets me excited, and I just might get carried away, okay? Uh, so that's just a little disclaimer there, because we're talking about a movement of destiny, if we were to look around at the world today, we could see that there have been movements all around us. Movements of various kinds. Movements in society, political movements. Movements of economic nature. Movements of, of social nature. Different kinds of movements that have gotten people swept up into what it is that movement is headed towards. I believe at the same time that some of those movements are stirred up by man. Some of those movements are stirred up by the imaginations of humanity, but I believe that there are movements in our world today that God is directly behind. That God is directly behind. And today I want to talk about one of those. A movement of destiny. A movement of destiny. Something that I'm so thankful for about the prophecies of Scripture is that truly they are prophecies of hope. Maybe you've looked at prophecies and you've just looked at them as prophecies of confusion. <laughs> Maybe you've looked at prophecies and you've, you've seen them as prophecies of boredom. Maybe you've looked at prophecies and you've seen them as prophecies of beasts and dragons and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? But I tell you what, there are prophecies of Scripture that are prophecies of hope because they're revealing Jesus Christ and what he's up to in the world. Did I say, maybe I didn't make that very clear. There are prophecies in Scripture that are revealing Jesus Christ and what he is up to in the world. In other words, there are times in our lives when it doesn't seem like God is doing anything at all. But the prophecies of hope give us a recognition that behind all of this, in a bigger level, God is always at work. He is always at work. Whether or not you feel it, God has promised it. That's why they're prophecies of hope. And today we're going to take a look at one of those movements that are declared in prophecy. And I can't wait to get to it, all right? So let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we thank you for the ways that you move. We thank you for the ways that you enact uh, redemption and salvation on our behalf. Even when we're completely unaware of what you're up to, you are in control. And so, God, I pray that today as we work through these prophecies, 
that you would give us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We pray that you would be the one who is teaching us, that you would be the one who is instructing us. I thank you that you have specifically appointed for each one of us to be sitting in this congregation today. And maybe there's someone who's going to listen to this later on in recording. And Father, you have, a, you have divinely appointed this message to reach our ears today. So Father, don't let us underestimate you and what purpose you have in store today. If there's something you want to do in our hearts, if there's something you want to change and transform in our lives, I pray that you would do it just now. Send us your Holy Spirit, God, because it's not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord. As we open up these words, please open up our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right, friends, we're going to study together, and our study is going to start in the book of Daniel. So let's find it. The book of Daniel, chapter 8. Today's presentation is a movement of destiny, and we're going to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Daniel was a prophet. In the Old Testament, we find him. He's a captive taken from Jerusalem, and now he lives in Babylon. God has used him as a youngster to testify to King Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 2, we see him standing before kings. And now we're going to go to Daniel chapter 8, and God is giving him a specific vision for a specific purpose. When you're in Daniel chapter 8, go ahead and say amen. amen. All right, Daniel chapter 8, I'm almost there. Here we go. Daniel chapter 8. And today, as we look at these prophecies, we're going to go to three major prophetic passages. Three major prophetic passages, and we're just going to connect the dots to see how God is moving and raising up a movement of destiny that he's inviting us to be a part of. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, Daniel has just seen a vision, and this vision, part of this vision is a recognition of a little horn, a little horn that is symbolizing a power that is standing against Jesus, a power that is trying to substitute for the ministry of Jesus itself. And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, there's an angel that's calling out to another angel saying, how long is this going to be? Let's read it. Daniel 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, we looked at this passage in detail just about an hour ago. If you, didn't, if you weren't part of that Sabbath school presentation, go ahead and get your recording. You'll get your mind wrapped around some of these details. But here's this question that Daniel has been asking, and now an angel is asking another angel, how long is this going to be? How long until things are set right? How long until the ministry of Jesus is really restored to its rightful place? And Daniel hears the angel respond in verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be, what's the next word in your Bible? Reconsecrated. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Then the sanctuary will be restored. Now we've discovered that a prophetic day is literally a what? A year, okay? So here, 2,300 years until things get set right again. Until things in the sanctuary, now if we look at and compare to Daniel chapter 9, we realize that Jesus is, or this, this angel is specifically referring to the heavenly sanctuary and what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. And so it's a prophecy about what God is doing in the sanctuary. But this prophecy here, 2,300 days, this prophecy confused Daniel. It confused him to no end. He was trying to figure out because he was focused on, on the temple in his hometown Jerusalem that had been destroyed. Daniel was wondering, wait a minute, I thought it was almost time to go back and now you're telling me it's 2,300 years until things are set right? Daniel is sickened. Actually, take a look at the end of chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, when you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, Daniel 8, verse 27, it says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Apparently, this vision was so shocking to Daniel that it physically affected him. Have you ever heard news from somebody? Have you ever gotten a phone call that was really devastating, that it actually it caused your heart to ache? 
that you were physically affected, you, you felt like you just couldn't even stand up anymore, your joints were loose or whatever it was, Daniel was this way at hearing this news. What? 2,300 years. And if you're following along in your handout, you can start filling things in. Apparently Daniel is sickened by the fact that he did not understand the vision of the 2,300 days. He couldn't understand it. He couldn't wrap his mind around it. Notice with me in verse 26, there's a particular reason for this, because in verse 26, the angel was telling him something about that vision. In verse 26, it says, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Do you catch what the angel is saying? The angel is telling Daniel to seal it up, block it up, close it up, because really this vision about the 2,300 days, it's not for you, it's for the future. So Daniel, okay, he... Maybe he's sick because he's trying to interpret these things and he's not really connecting the dots, but the angel is trying to assure him, go ahead and seal it up, close it up for now because it's not really for your day, it's for the future. It's for the future. In fact, if you turn over to Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, God is giving Daniel a little bit of understanding. He's giving Daniel some understanding because throughout the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying his heart out. He's trying to understand the vision but in Daniel 9, the angel tells him some, some information. In verse 22, it says, And he informed me, Daniel 9, verse 22, And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. I have come to give you skill to understand. And if you were here during the, the first hour of our Sabbath school time, you, you realized that he was given skill to understand that this vision wasn't about the earthly temple. This vision was actually about the heavenly temple. And so here this angel is unfolding these things and he's saying, Daniel, it's not really for your day. 2,300 days, it's fulfilled later on. It's for the future. It's for the end of time. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, this, this idea of this vision comes up again. In Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. When you're there, say amen. amen. Here's Daniel. He's still trying to kind of grapple with this vision. The, the angel has given him partial understanding of the first 70 weeks of that vision. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, look what happens. It says this, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and do what? And seal the book. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Very interesting that here at the very end of the book of Daniel, the angel visits him again and says, look, that vision, that information, that information that is referring to many days in the future, okay, you've got it, you've written it down, but go ahead and shut it up. And it's interesting that the language says, seal the book. Did you catch that? Seal the book. I just want you to kind of tuck that lingo away in a shelf in your mind. We're going to pick that up in just a few moments. And so Daniel continues to hear and see this vision. Very interesting, in verses 5 through 8, he sees an angel standing on the shore, and he also sees him, uh, another angel standing in the water, and this angel is declaring, how long, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And as this information is being unfolded to Daniel, go ahead and skim down to verse 9. And in verse 9, the angel says, And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are what? Closed up and sealed till which time? The time of the end. Okay, big picture right now. Daniel is given some understanding. He's given, some, he's given a vision, but now he's told to seal up the vision for it's referring to the time of the end. Okay, are we following that along? Okay, yeah? So Daniel is given a vision that's not for his time, but it's actually for ours. And with that information, Daniel is told to seal it up. Seal the book. Now, let's go to second prophetic passage. Let's go to Revelation chapter 10. Go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 10. We read this for our scripture reading this morning. Revelation chapter 10, and I want us to notice some details that are recalling 
the details of Daniel. Very powerful. Revelation chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the pew in front of you. You've got to see this for yourself. This is powerful. Revelation chapter 10. The first four verses, actually it describes an angel that is, has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, somewhat reminiscent to the angel that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 12. Very interesting. And in Daniel chapter 10, excuse me, Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 8, the Bible, actually I'll start in verse 1. I'll start in verse 1 just so we kind of have an idea of, of this, uh, just a visual. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right. The Bible says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book, what's the next word? Open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Okay, so here's this angel that Daniel sees, and a very interesting detail, beside from the physical appearance of this angel, is that in his hand there is a little book that is open. In his hand there is a little book that is open. And in verse 8, the Bible says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open. Are you following with me? This is Revelation 10, verse 8. Revelation 10, verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Apparently, this detail about this little book being open is significant. And it's so significant that now in this vision that, Dan, that, that John is seeing in Revelation, John is now asked to become an actor in this vision. He's asked to actually step into the drama and he's asked to go take the little book that is open. Question we need to ask is, what is this little book? What is this little book that is now open? If we're connecting the dots already to Daniel chapter 8, this little book that is open apparently was closed before. And what book was sealed up in the past? but the visions of the 2,300 days that Daniel saw in chapter 8. Are we following this? Yes or no? The, 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 the imagery of the angel with the land, foot on the land and foot on the sea is connecting us back to Daniel, but now we're talking about this little book that is open, is open, is open, because it was sealed before. Okay, so now John, he's asked to step into this vision, Representing the people of God, and, and, and the commission in verse 8 is, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Now notice verse 9. What is he supposed to do with that little book? So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. Why, don't mind if I do. When was the last time you put salt on a book? <laughs> when was the last time you dipped your book in some ketchup? No, 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 no. What is going on here? Take and eat it. Very interesting connection to the Old Testament. In Jeremiah's experience and in Ezekiel's experience, these two Old Testament prophets God has in the past told to eat a book. Notice, Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. In Ezekiel 3, verse 1, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Apparently, in the Old Testament prophet's experience, when a prophet was told to eat the words of God, <laughs> he was told, essentially, to go preach the words of God. Amen. Do you catch that? In Ezekiel's experience, he was told to eat the scroll and go speak them to the house of Israel. In Jeremiah's experience, the same thing. And it was a joyous experience for him. It was like fire in his bones. So, if we're importing this Old Testament background to Revelation chapter 10, and we see John representing the people of God, going to this, to this angel who has a little book that's open, and he's commissioned now to eat it, apparently he's being commissioned to preach it. Do you follow this, yes or no? If this little book is the sealed vision of the 2,300 days, which referred to the cleansing of the sanctuary, the hour of God's judgment, now here in Revelation 10, 
God's people are being commissioned to take it, to eat it so they can preach it. Whoa! And sure enough, did this actually happen in the experience of God's people? It sure did, right? In the 1830s and 1840s, here was this honest-hearted farmer, (laughs) man with no, no theological, formal theological training, but individual named William Miller. And in the 1820s, he began to study and put things together. He was an agnostic. Actually, he was a deist who really didn't have much of a trust in God. Deists often think that God, sure, he got things started in this world, but he just kind of left it and abandoned it for the world to take care of itself. But eventually the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of this man's heart. A man of strong constitution, he was a farmer, and God actually led him through a process of Bible study, and it is quoted in his memoirs that, that in his process of Bible study, he would read from the beginning to the end, and if there was ever a word or a concept that he didn't quite understand, he would take his concordance, and he would compare that word or concept with every other related text about that word or concept until he had a firm grasp, oh, that's what it means, and then he would progress. So he compared scripture with scripture and suddenly, I shouldn't say suddenly, but over the process of time, William Miller came across Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And as he put things together, he was realizing that Daniel 9 interprets Daniel 8, just like we saw this morning in our 930 study. And sure enough, The prophecy of the 2300 days actually reaches all the way, in his study he realized that it reaches all the way to the 1840s. Now for a man who is living in the year 1831, for him to realize that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in his lifetime, this is pretty exciting for him especially in that day, in the, in the 19th century, it was commonly understood that the cleansing of the sanctuary would be the cleansing of the earth by fire. He was connecting the, the dates, and he was looking at the dates, saying, oh, something's going to happen in the 1840s, and the interpretation of that event, he understood, was the second coming of Jesus. Now, what do you think that did for this honest-hearted farmer? <laughs> if you actually realize that wait a minute, Bible prophecy is giving us something to know when Jesus is coming, and I can actually see that Jesus is coming in my lifetime. If I can actually see that Jesus is coming around the corner, what would that do for your life and mine? If you knew that in the Word of God, hypothetically speaking, if you knew that there were prophecies that pointed out that Jesus was coming in six months to the date, what would the next six months look like for you? What would the next six months look like for you? Those plans that you had to go there, mm, not so important, right? Yeah, that, 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 uh, that struggle with your business, uh, that could probably wait, right? All these things suddenly take on new perspective, and sure enough, William Miller was just rocked to his core. He had a desire in his heart to share these things, but he wasn't a preacher. He didn't know what to do with this. And so he made a deal with God. He said, God, if you want me to preach about this, uh, if you want me to share this with people, you've got to be the one to set it up. And sure enough, in just a couple hours, he gets a knock on his door from his nephew who has walked miles to get to his house and say, Uncle William, our preacher isn't going to be at church this weekend. Would you please share what you've been studying in prophecy? William Miller falls to his knees. I mean, you can can read this story uh, in, in full in other places. But for William Miller, that began something in which he was seeing the movement of God. And from that occasion, he was giving another invitation. From that occasion, another invitation. And soon, there was a real movement that swept up. A movement of people who looked forward to the second coming of Jesus. I don't know if we understand this, but in the 19th century, there was a common perception that Jesus would come after a certain period of earthly prosperity. 
But they were beginning to realize that maybe this wasn't so because uh, French Revolution comes and earth isn't getting all that good after all. And so they realize, oh wait, maybe Jesus is coming before all of this. And so they're starting to realize this. uh, the, The movement of the Millerites, the Millerite movement begins to sweep. And in the 1840s, people are selling their lands. People aren't harvesting their potato crops anymore. This and that, because the preacher continues to proclaim his message, and they settle on a date in October of 1844. This is radical stuff. This sparked a great awakening in this United States and beyond. There were preachers in Europe who were coming to the same conclusion, and they were proclaiming that kind of message. People were eating the scroll. People were preaching the vision of the 2300 days. Are you seeing how this is fulfilled throughout history? This is pretty radical. I tell you what, I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist family. Praise the Lord. I grew up understanding the, uh, the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it wasn't this, this story of its origins. I didn't understand this story of its origins until I was much older. In fact, I didn't learn it from any theology class. I learned it from, uh, from studying scripture. <laughs> okay, so here, here is this, this prophecy of, of go take this scroll and eat it. It's being fulfilled. But now, zero your eyes in back at verse 9. In verse 9, starting at the beginning, it says, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach what? Mine says bitter, yours says sour. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Stomach is bitter, mouth is sweet. When you're eating, whether it's potluck or a book or whatever it might be, when you're eating, what experience comes first, stomach or mouth? Mouth. Mouth. In other words, you're going to have a sweet experience, but it will turn bitter. You'll have a sweet experience in your mouth, but it will be like a punch in the stomach in the end. And sure enough, as people throughout history were being moved by God to eat the scroll that was sealed up, but now is open. It was a sweet experience. It sparked a major revival. There was a great awakening. People were turning their lives over to God. People were, were, were settling new priorities in their lives. As people walked up and down the streets, the conversations were completely different. It is told that people would, would just pass by each other, complete strangers, and, and one would say to the other, Hey, brother, do you see any sin in me that needs to be changed and confessed and redeemed by God? These were the kinds of conversations that were taking place because people understood that Jesus was just around the corner. It was a sweet experience. There was great revival. But we all know that today is October of 2013. And when October 22, that was a specific date that was set by those Millerites, when October 22, 1844 took place, that day was a, great of, a day of great anticipation. They were waiting, they were waiting, they were awaiting their Lord. They were singing songs, singing hymns of praise. They sat together, they just realized, hey, the cares that we had before, they are no longer cares now because we are waiting for eternity just around the corner. Wow. This was a great revival for them, but you know that when midnight came in October 23, settled in, that day of great expectation became a great disappointment. It was a great disappointment. And so even this prophecy here, as it's fulfilled, as it's fleshed out in verse 9, it was sweet in the mouth, but in the stomach, it became bitter. Do you see now the the story of the Millerite movement sparking a great revival that eventually became a great disappointment? This all was prophesied in Revelation chapter 10. And I've often looked back at this passage and I've often looked back at that experience. And I've said, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why would God even anticipate this throughout Scripture? But let me just share with you that that there are times in which God has 
used a misunderstanding of prophecy for the glory of his cause. And let me say that again. God has actually used a misunderstanding of prophecy for his greater glory, to point to Jesus all the more. Can you think of a time in which the followers of Jesus had a perception of prophecy that was so rock solid, that was so locked in, and they thought those expectations were being fulfilled, but in the end it turned out to be a great disappointment. Here's a picture of Jesus that's depicting the time when he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Do you remember how excited the disciples were? It wasn't just the disciples. All the surrounding cities, as they were entering into Jerusalem, they just, like there was a great groundswell of excitement because they saw something being fulfilled. There was Jesus sitting on a donkey. This was a fulfillment of an expectation in Zechariah. In Zechariah, I think it's chapter 9, it says that your king shall ride on a donkey. And when Jesus sat on the donkey, the expectation and the hope that they all had that Jesus, would there be, that Jesus would be their king, they saw it in grand fulfillment and they saw, yes, it's happening. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem as our king and take out the Roman Empire. This is what they thought. The disciples were first in line. I'll be right next to him. And they were going along with a misunderstanding of prophecy. Did Jesus stop the misunderstanding of prophecy at that point? Yes or no? No, he actually went along with it. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? When you study these things and you realize that Jesus was actually giving this opportunity so everyone's eyes would be on him when he went to the cross as the Lamb of God. When people were so focused on the king, no wonder they were watching as he went to the cross. Their misunderstanding of Scripture actually fixed their eyes on Jesus so that God had the opportunity to magnify the spotlight on Jesus as the Lamb who takes away our sins. People began to study prophecy after that, and they connected the dots, Isaiah 53, all these types of things, and they realized Jesus was the fulfillment of their hopes. Now fast forward to the 1840s, here's a misunderstanding of prophecy, blatantly. William Miller and all those who, who, who had adhered to this understanding, they had connected the dots in chronology, they saw the dates fulfilled, but their understanding of the event was skewed. It was a misunderstanding of the prophecy, yet God took it as an advantage. God used it to fix their eyes on Jesus, to magnify the spotlight, not to magnify the spotlight on Jesus as the lamb, but to magnify the spotlight on Jesus as the high priest. This is powerful. Do you understand what's going on here? Jesus is taking a misunderstanding of prophecy, something that, that the devil might use to be a great disappointment, and he's using it to be a great victory. I don't know what kinds of disappointments you may be experiencing in your life today. But if you think it's so great that it cannot be overcome, think again. The God of prophecy is able to take the greatest of your disappointments and turn them to a spotlight on what Jesus is doing. Whew. Oh man, that's something that I get excited about. I don't know where you're going to take this, but it's a prophecy of hope. That Jesus is still in charge when you feel like everything is lost. That Jesus is still up to something. And maybe our eyes just need to look a little bit higher. And so, in the 1840s, this great expectation that became a great bitter disappointment, it's actually something that God was using to spotlight what Jesus was doing in the heavenly sanctuary. What took place in 1844? Obviously, on earth there was a great disappointment, but what took place... It wasn't an event on earth. It was what Jesus was doing in heaven. Jesus was transitioning from his ministry in the holy place and now to the final act of his ministry in the most holy place. He was beginning that final act, that, that final act of cleansing, not to condemn the world of sin, but to cleanse the world of sin. And this is what Jesus was doing. Now, if you just kind of put yourself in the shoes of those who were disappointed, those who were greatly disappointed, those who were following William Miller, Obviously, this was hard to swallow. This was hard to swallow. 
And in fact, there were, there were all sorts of different reactions, but there were essentially four kinds of reactions. After the Great Disappointment, there was a large group that said, forget it. This is all a hoax. They turned their backs, turned their backs on prophecy, turned their backs on scripture, turned their backs on what God could possibly do in all these things. And those people, they just, they left the faith altogether. There was a second group of people. This group of people, they, 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 they saw that these prophecies, they were onto something. They saw that William Miller's teaching was onto something, and what they did was they ended up setting another date. And that other date, they put their hopes on, and those hopes were disappointed again. Then they set another date, and those hopes were disappointed. Then they set another date and another, and soon enough, you can imagine that they would stop setting dates altogether, that their hope would soon be lost. And this is the experience of that second group. They were date setters. Okay, so there was a group of rejectors. There was a group of date setters. There was also a third group. There was a third group that said, wait, all these things are spot on. Jesus really did come. These were the spiritualizers. They spiritualized Jesus' second coming. He really did come. And they took texts in Matthew and Mark and all these things where it says that you must become like children to enter into the kingdom of God. And these spiritualizers said, Jesus' kingdom is here. We just have to be like children. And some even went so far as crawling around on their hands and knees. These were spiritualizers. You can tell how long that went, right? So three groups, rejectors, date setters, spiritualizers. But there was a fourth group. A very, very small group who said, wait, the dates are right. We don't need to set more dates. I wonder if the event was misunderstood. And so they studied. And they studied. And they studied. And they began to realize that this, this cleansing of the sanctuary was not so much a description of the second coming of Jesus, but of what he would do before his second coming, and that is to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. This movement is what we today know as the Advent movement. This small group of studiers took this hope and, and they began to realize, no, 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 there is something more. Something actually happened on 1840, in 1844, and that was Jesus taking on the final phase of his redemptive story. And they realized that the spotlight was not just on Jesus as the Lamb, but the spotlight was now on Jesus as the High Priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us, he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. And this group eventually became the Advent Movement. They took on a name several decades later of Seventh-day Adventist. Friends, are you recognizing that here in Scripture, we have the movement of God, and it's a movement of destiny. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 10. In Revelation chapter 10, we see the instruction, take, eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now reading in verse 10, the Bible says, Revelation 10 verse 10, it says, Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then notice what happens after this, this sweet turned bitter experience. In verse 11 it says, And he said to me, You must prophesy, what's the next word? Again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So here, this, this vision has been fulfilled step by step. The people of God truly did eat the, the closed book of Daniel. They ate it, and they, they began to preach it, but that experience was sweet at first, and it turned bitter. And as they're kind of doubled over in that bitterness, in that bitter experience, the angel actually tells the people of God in verse 11, you must prophesy again. Get up and do it again. And sure enough, as we've seen it, that small group that studied, that small group that continued to push and persist, that small group who thought, yes, the dates were right, Jesus must be up to something, that small group began to preach the prophecies again. And they prophesied about many nations, 
peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, this is two out of three. We're, we've gone to three prophetic passages. We've looked at Daniel 8, and we've connected the dots to Revelation 10. Now go with me to Revelation chapter 14. Turn a few chapters over. Revelation chapter 14. And I'm just going to request maybe a couple of our deacons. Can you open the doors for me? I'm a little bit warm. I'm afraid I'm going to fall over here. All right. Can, can, can I get just a couple of people to, to open up some doors for me? Thank you very much. All right. We're going to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. And now look at verse 6. If you're there, say amen. amen. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. We've just read in Revelation 10, verse 11. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. You must preach these prophecies again. And then notice in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and what else? And people. Does this sound vaguely familiar? Do you realize here in Revelation 14, 6, when it's depicted that at the end of time, in Revelation chapter 13, you have the picture of the Antichrist power and then the false, the false prophet, the, the second beast that will, that will subscribe or ascribe worship to the Antichrist power. And then in chapter 14, you have these angels that are preaching the gospel message. Oh, thanks. Or delivering water. Thank you for lovely wives. Let's see if I can do this. <laughs> so just getting this picture here, we've got... Okay, I'm just going to stop. All right. Sweet in the mouth. Okay, here we go. So here in Revelation chapter 14, we actually see angels that are sent on a rescue mission to try to preach the everlasting gospel to those who are worshiping the beast. And part of this, it says, to having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is a direct linguistic link to Revelation 10, verse 11. In other words, the preaching of the first angel's message is actually the sequel of Revelation 10, 11. It's the continuation of it. In other words, when that, that small group of believers who began to study and say, no, 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 something was right on time in October of 1844, something else happened as they began to prophesy again, Revelation 14, 6 depicts them as proclaiming the everlasting gospel. This everlasting gospel, this first angel is the first of three, and we know them today as the three angels' messages. Friends, the three angels' messages has become the script, the script of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Why? Because it's these three angels' messages that preach their message to fear God, give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come. It's these angels that declare, look, Babylon, this false system, this counterfeit Christ is fallen. It's these three angels that declare, look, if you persist in worshiping the beast, you're not going to have rest. If you persist in worshiping the beast, you're going to have to drink a cup that has already been drunk by Jesus Christ himself. And it's these three messages that result in verse 12, Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's the preaching of these messages that actually helps people to endure until the time Jesus comes. And you notice that as soon as these messages close their preaching, as soon as these angels close their preaching, notice in verse 4, then I look, excuse me, verse 14. Revelation 14, verse 14. Revelation 14, 14. You've got to see this. If you're there, say amen. Okay, so after the three angels preach their message, after the continuation, the sequel of Revelation 10 is picked up here in Revelation 14, after these three angels preach their message, notice what event comes next. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the what has come? For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. In other words, here's a picture of the second coming. Here's a picture of the second coming and the catalyst for the ripeness of that harvest. 
The catalyst was the preaching of the three angels' messages. Friends, if you didn't realize, the Seventh-day Adventist church is not born from an accident. Let me say that again. The Seventh-day Adventist church didn't come from an accident. God actually prophesied in Revelation that there would be a great disappointment. You know, I have some friends who, who have this idea of, of, of God not being the creator of the world. That, in fact, there were natural processes that just happened by chance, a big bang. And when you adopt a worldview like that, how much purpose fills your heart and mind on a daily basis? Not very much. Because we're all just an accident. We're all just kind of came to be. But if it's true that God started something on purpose, then in your life and mine, he's got even more purpose. I've often wondered, hey, why would God pull this prank? I mean, why would God even let this accident happen? No, I'm realizing now that it is not an accident. That God divinely appointed this so that all eyes could be on Jesus and what he was doing in the heavenly sanctuary. The Adventist church was not born out of an accident. The Adventist church was born out of prophecy. This is radical. (laughs) In other words, the Adventist church, in this perspective of prophecy, is not just one of several preferences. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's not just one of, "Mm, I've got some options, which one has the best food, which one has the best music, da-da-da-da-da. The Adventist church actually has been given a prophetic identity. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that we get to kind of puff up our chest a little bit more and say, I got prophecy on my side, you don't. Is that what that means? No, no, because this prophetic identity comes part and parcel with a prophetic mission, and that mission is to preach the everlasting gospel as the three angels' messages articulate it. Do you understand this? No other church has this commission, friends. We have been given a special commission at a special time because the issues in Revelation mark it so. So watch this. So if I'm going to be a part of the Adventist church, I'm stepping into prophecy. If I'm going to be a member of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, I have a prophetic identity. I can actually turn to the book of Revelation and say, look, I am right there. (laughs) I don't know how many of us realize how significant this is. I have friends who have walked away from the Adventist church, and I wonder to myself, do they know what they're walking away from? Do they know? I have friends who are in the Adventist church. Do we know what we are part of. I have friends who are part of this church, lifelong, you know, lifers or whatever. Uh, I myself, I had no clue. I had no clue what I was a part of. I was a part of the Adventist church because it was just what I grew up with. Later on, I was part of the Adventist church because it was more right than every other. No, now I'm a part of the Adventist church because God has a prophetic mission for an end-time people who will prepare people to stand for the second coming. And that's why I'm a part of the Adventist church. Friends, today, I don't know where you stand. You may be here in these pews every single week. Praise the Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to minister to your heart and use you to minister to others. But friends, as you subscribe, as you join your life with the movement of destiny, Friends, I pray that you would raise up your voice and say with the three angels' messages, fear God and give him glory. Now, we cannot preach these messages if we don't live these messages ourselves. And so first, before we even try to share them, we've got to receive them, amen? 
And so if we have no idea what these three messages are about, friends, I pray that you and I would study, study, study. And maybe that's what we should move to next month, a, a series on the three angels' messages themselves. Friends, this is our prophetic identity. And again, it's not because we can, you know, just kind of shrug off our shoulders and kind of look down on everyone. No, this is a prophetic call to a very prophetic mission. Now today, I stand here because I'm, a, I'm preaching and it's more comfortable for me to stand than it is to sit. But right now, I want to stand and say I'm part of God's prophetic movement of destiny. Friends, I wonder today how many of us desire to make a stand physically and say, yes, I'm part of a movement of destiny. Friends, if that's your desire, go ahead and stand to your feet if it's possible. This is a call from God, a commission. Will you live and preach the three angels' messages? Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. He sees your stand. He's, he sees all the struggles against that too. But by the grace of God, we will fulfill this commission. This is not something to boast about. This is something to humbly ask the Holy Spirit to use us to fulfill. Friends, let's bow our heads together as we pray. God in heaven, how could it be that you in your infinite wisdom would actually use mere mortals to preach the everlasting gospel? God, angels could do this much more effectively, but for some reason you are calling the angelic hosts to coordinate an earthbound mission to seek and save the lost. God, we thank you that throughout history, throughout prophecy, you are constantly at work. Even in the midst of our disappointments, God, we recognize that you're able to turn those disappointments into victories. So Lord, as we're standing here today, it's not because we, we've got it all together. Lord, it's because we desire you to turn our disappointments into your victories. It's because we desire you to use us as part of your movement of destiny. Lord, we pray that this, this identity would give us boldness and at the same time that it would give us humility. We pray, God, that in times to come, you would use us to join our lives and to join our voices with the preaching of the three angels' messages. God, if there are some of us here today who are struggling with this, this concept, or who, are, who are wondering if, if this is really for them, I pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth and to, to, to really settle things in their own hearts and minds. Maybe there are some of us who have been here uh, for, for a long, long time. I pray that you would reignite in our hearts a living passion to do once again what you have called us and appointed us to do in prophecy. Thank you so much, Father. We pray this in Jesus' saving and powerful name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, this evening we will continue Prophecies of Hope. Uh, right now there's a fellow.